You're late, said Frodo. Gandalf replied, A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Recognize this quotes movie? Stay tuned to find out or check out the title of this episode of Talking Pictures Trivia. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. KJ. And my name's Chris. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. In round one, each question is worth one point, and in round two, each question is worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Tom, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to December 2001. An old book has been adapted into a movie trilogy by a horror film director with an incredible combination of state-of-the-art CG and practical effects. A score that can make any grown man cry. Beautiful people, mostly men really, and an epic journey that starts with the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring was released in theaters alongside the first Harry Potter movie, Ocean's Eleven, not another teen movie, and Gosford Park. Chris will be quizzing us today. Chris, what is the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring all about? Well, when a magical horcrux from 2,500 years ago ends up in the hands of an everyman, I mean a hobbit, a group of friends decide to go for a walk, a long walk. Along the way, cabbages are stolen, shady characters are met, Black riders murder feather pillows. Elves are rebranded. Darkness awakens. Friends are lost. Bonds are strained. And Bill the Pony returns safely to Rivendale. Tom, if you had only one word to describe the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, what word would that be? Gisegen. KJ? Suitspell. Nick? Epic. And my word would be Nexus. It's time for question one. When Gandalf arrives in the Shire for the first time, he has a reunion with Bilbo at Bag End. Bilbo describes his reasoning for wanting to leave and remarks that he is getting old. What does Bilbo say next that continues to convey how he feels at that moment? Locked in. Oh, I'm upset it's not in my brain right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lock in. I'll lock in. All right, Nick, you were the last to lock in. So what do you think Bilbo says right after he announces that he's feeling old? He says that it's time to go and he should have gone a long time ago. All right. What about you, Tom? I, said, I want to go on an adventure. And KJ? I feel old, Gandalf. Like butter spread over too much bread. And KJ is going to take the point for this one. That's oh. exactly what he says. He I thought says, it was after he says he's old. Uh, he says, I'm, I'm old. I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that's been scraped over too much bread. I can't argue with that one. That's pretty spot on. <laughs> the reason I brought this one up is, is it's probably one of my favorite quotes in the book as well as the movie. It just it epitomizes everything that he's feeling at that moment. And as a man that's approaching 40, I can absolutely feel exactly what he's talking about. Uh, but the real reason I wanted to talk about this one was the idea of how it was shot. So Gandalf is on screen, or I should say Ian McKellen is on set, as well as Bilbo is on set. But yet Bilbo looks a lot smaller than Gandalf does because of forced perspective. So I wanted to bring this up because there's a lot of these little camera tricks in this movie. And I wanted to kind of open the floor up to ones that you saw, ones that you liked, other things other than forced perspective that maybe came to mind that you really thought. Because it's it's incredibly well shot movie. Uh, I think Tom hit it in, in, the, in, the, in the bumper for the last episode that the people that made this really cared a lot. And I wanted to see what you guys thought about it. I believe the earliest trick if you will with perspective is actually when Gandalf rolls into town and the wagon when when Frodo jumps on the wagon I believe when I was watching those DVDs with the extended behind the scenes that I shared about last week 
they showed a lot of how that was done. So that was a funky wagon where Frodo was set further back so that it looked like they were next to each other. That was just the beginning of some of the tricks that they did in this film. Yeah, and, and on those DVDs, Nick, it, it's funny how when they couldn't shoot it that way, um, they point out the fake hands that Gandalf has holding their, their reins. But every time I watch it, I always look for it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to look for the hands. I still don't see them. I, I, it's so seamless when it's, when it's in the production film. I, I, the special effects are amazing. Yeah, because a lot of it's practical. So we do see some special effects or green screen when they have to stand in a line and, and those types of things. Um, but it seems very rare. It, it's one of these things where you can compare it to episode two of the Star Wars trilogy, the, the prequel trilogy, and you could see how helpful limitation is. That the fact that you couldn't rely on CG for everything forced them to be kind of more creative, I think. When you're not just kind of experimenting with CG tools, very often it's it forces you to to be a little more creative. And I think a lot of the the yeah the practical effects look good. I mean, you have the cave troll and things like that that are CG, and and honestly have not aged as well, right? I mean, the cave troll just doesn't doesn't look as good. But I think the the trickery is a lot of fun, and it's aided by the fact that. There's just so much to look at in every shot, especially in the Shire. And the Shire is rich in detail. So not only are you, uh, are you, uh, so, so to speak, being deceived or your eyes being deceived by the, the trick photography, uh, it's, I, I have trouble kind of looking for the trick photography because you, you're glancing at the real depth of detail in, in each frame. Yeah, the, the framing of the frames, too, is is phenomenal. And I love how many wide shots we get. He mm. is not afraid to pull the camera back and and show us the Shire, show us the, the exiting of the Shire, the forest around the Shire. I mean, every, every piece of Middle Earth, we got these wide shots. And I love some of the silhouette shots. I, I thought it would get old, you know, watching this movie over and over again, like, oh, yeah, that shot again. But it is it was great to see the shadow of, of, of Gandalf and Frodo walking kind of with the horse and then Sam trotting up behind in, in that silhouette. I mm. did, it's a beautiful movie. It mm. goes further than even Hobbits for that type of actions. If you look at Gimli, played by John Reese davies I remember him from the Indiana Jones movies. He's a big guy. He's not a dwarf. Okay, so that even carried forward in multiple characters that weren't just in one scene or another. Like that had to be done every time he was in view. He's actually, I think, the tallest of the actors for any yeah. of them was Gimli. But actually that worked to their favor. So when Gimli was next to Frodo and Sam, they didn't have to force their perspective because he was literally just a little bit taller, six or eight inches taller, making him dwarf compared to, compared to the hobbits. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I also wanted to talk about, there's a whole bunch of matte paintings in this movie, which was, this was kind of one of the last movies that really utilized yeah. them. So when they go into Bree, when they open the gate to go into Bree and they, you see them walking down, you see Peter pull the, pull the camera way back like KJ was talking about. The foreground where they're walking is actually a set but behind them is all matte paintings painted by the production designers for, for the movie. And then the last thing, I don't know if anybody knows, is that this has some of the most used minis work ever. So the Rivendale set is all 100% a miniature. Wow. And mm. so is uh, uh, Isengard is a miniature. So in Isengard, when Gandalf rides up, the, very, the only thing that's on that that's actually real is Soromon walking down. He's CG'd in. Everything else is a, is a gigantic miniature, as well as the mine beneath uh, Isengard. All that really? stuff. So, so as the camera's panning through it, that's a motorized camera going through a, a miniature that was created by artists. So those, those Kiwi artists are fantastic. I remember that in my DVDs behind the scenes. That was really cool because you actually, like we always picture you know action figures and toys they literally had the toys while they were making the film i mean that's how they got a lot of, if you notice there's a lot of those sweeping camera motions when you're going through those big i don't want to say action scene but landscapes of a fantasy setting also going back to what you're saying about the matte paintings i wonder if you get away with that more because it's a fantasy setting so you you can believe in this um 
portrayal where sometimes I think when those were used in movies that were based on real world, you could almost see them, something was a little off. I imagine it's also the, the skill of the cinematographer and Jackson and, and Fran Walsh, right, who also actually directed, I think, a, quite a bit of it, considering the schedule, uh, that they, they sort of know where to place the camera in relation to, to these various devices. It's, it's a remarkably clever movie. And since we're gushing about um, practical effects and things, the weapons in this movie were also really cool. Um, I can only imagine what the budget was for the quantity of weapons and, and the detail that went into each one. Um, I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but um, I think Lord of the Rings paved the way for a lot of other media in the future. Especially medieval or fantasy settings, sometimes things just seem off or like not polished right or they should, they're too clean or too dirty. You know what I mean? It just doesn't feel lived in. They did a great job with that. Yeah, there's, there's a respect for culture, individual. These weapons come from cultures with histories. I, I remember watching on the DVD extras them talking about, they actually had a forge in the Weta workshop where the guy would actually forge the weaponry and make it right there on the spot. So it wasn't even like foam plastic swords. They were legit metal. If they weren't, be, if they weren't being struck or swung by, by stunt actors, they were legitimate weapons. It's time for question two. So after realizing that the Ring of Power has been in the Shire for the last 60 years, Gandalf rides to Isengard to consult with Soromon the White. Soromon then chastises Gandalf for his oversight, saying that this has slowed the wizard's mind. What is this? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Nick, you are once again the last one to lock in. So what is causing Gandalf's mind to slow? His compassion for the hobbits. All right. KJ, what about you? What is causing uh, Gandalf's mind to slow? Your love of the halfling leaf has slowed your mind, Gandalf, or something like that. And Tom, what about you? I had either the leaf or the weed. I forget exactly what term he uses, but the thing they smoke. All right. So we're going to give the points to KJ and Tom. He does oh. say that it is that it is the halfling's leaf. That actually is what calls I remember him. the Hobbit, something Hobbit related. Mm. Extra okay. point, extra point to the person who could tell me what is the brand of the halfling leaf that Bilbo likes to smoke. Oh. Old Toby. Old Toby, indeed. KJ takes oh. down my extra <laughs> half point. You're getting a half point on breaking the rules. Whoa. Care, nice. <laughs> All right. So the reason I brought up this one is, is not because oh, I, I, I like the idea that, you know, that, that they, he's telling him that his mind is slow because he smokes too much. What mm. he's smoking, who knows? All right, but at the same time, what I wanted to talk about was how this scene is actually not from the book. So uh, Peter Jackson and, and, and uh, Philpola, I forget her last name. Walsh? Philpola Walsh. They actually kind of had to craft the movie around this book because everybody says The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring was actually an unfilmable work of art. But they actually were able to do so by adding things, taking things out. So I wanted to know, I, I assume that most of you have read the book. I think all of you actually said that you did. Were there any notable scenes that are not there? Notable scenes that are there, like the wizard battle that you wanted to talk about that kind of made the movie better, maybe made the book better? I want your opinions on those types of things. And we're talking about book one, correct? Just Oh, yes. It, it, completely, completely just the fellowship. Well, Tom Bombadil. I was going to say Tom Bombadil. Yeah, it's probably the most famous. Maybe we should put some absence. context to that just in case, because it wasn't in the film. <laughs> yeah, and it makes it so Tom Bombadil is a, a somewhat magical creature who they run into. I think it's Strider's with them at that point, And no, he isn't. OK, so it's just the four halflings who uh, they meet Tom Bombadil. And Tom Bombadil is not actually influenced by the ring. He can hold it. He can carry it. It, do it doesn't really affect him it, it, he doesn't have a lust for it uh, and he's a sort of kind of depicted as like a, almost like a large man i imagine him sort of like a a red bearded santa claus type uh yeah that kind of makes sense that changes. yeah <laughs> I, I think it's a great thing to take him out because the the theme that they're drawing on is that those who don't want power are the people who we should invest 
with power. Um, and the people who seem less able to use power are the people who are able to kind of hold off the strength of the ring at least for a little while. Um, and so having having Frodo kind of alone have that heroism, have that ability, I think is is a lot more interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't know how much we're gonna list here, but yeah, Tom Babadil. Um, the length of time spent in the Shire um in the movie is far far less and i I think that was a huge improvement 17 Um, years yeah is that all it was 17 years it's 17 years between when bilbo leaves and when frodo leaves okay um honestly i think all of peter jackson's adaptions were good were very good um but farmer maggot is a really stand-up guy in the book he meets a ring wraith and tells him to go pound sand Whereas in um, the movie, uh, I forget who, it's not one of the Sackville Bagginses, but it's somebody says, oh, over in Hobbiton, they're right over there. So mm-hmm. kind of changes the feel there. Um, in the book, they stop at Mary's house, which is really cool. Was it Mary? Yeah, it was Mary. I think Mary is um, uh, Frodo's younger cousin. Um, so, so you get a little bit more interaction with the Hobbits there, but again, no need to do that in the movie. Um, the other big thing I really liked that they did was moving the story of the ring to the prologue. In the book, it's kind of during the Council of Eldron. And I think that would have ground the movie to a halt if they started. I mean, they elaborated on it a little bit more. You know, they kind of tell the story of the ring throughout the movie. But I thought that was another great addition. Um, and then Bill the Pony uh, does a great job establishing Sam's character in the book. Um, and I think in the extended editions, you get a quick scene. Um, but otherwise, that was another one. These are just things I was thinking of now. KJ, I'm really glad you brought up the prologue because sometimes in films, this feels very forced. And I think this movie did a wonderful job setting the tone for everything to come. You could have no familiarity with the Lord of the Rings series. And this kind of jumpstarts you into what's going on. So well done, Peter Jackson. I know I'm the first one ever to say that. Well, so I I heard... um that they made the whole movie and they're like, oh, what if we were just going to start in the Shire? And uh, the studio said, hey, Peter Jackson, can you make a two minute prologue just to kind of set up the ring? And the shortest he could figure out was seven minutes. But I remember watching this with our friend Doug, who's been on the show quite a bit. um, And he loves that opening battle. He just, he loves that opening battle. So I think setting the prologue with one of the most incredible battles we'd ever seen in our lives. I mean, that that when, when Sauron goes down and that wave knocks all those soldiers over we had never seen anything like that on film before there was there was nothing quite that um specific purposeful and and well shot i really enjoy the part where they explain the rings i know that's kind of crazy to say but how they break down each race and how many rings were given out but really there's this one ring that they didn't know about just the way that plays out within that prologue is really powerful. You know, one thing in the book, uh, Gandalf has one of the three rings, the elfin rings. Um, He was not originally given it, but he got the ring of fire, I think, later on. I think Galadriel actually has one too. Yeah, She does. And then they have that in the extended edition. What I was going over this with my wife, she was a little confused at first of why he wasn't so concerned that he had a ring. I was like, well, he knows he has a magic ring or he has a feeling, but he doesn't know it's the one ring because there are other magic rings in this universe. That's really the big shocker is it's the ring. Another thing I think was a great move was moving. um, I don't even know what to call that. That last scene where Boromir dies, moving that from the two towers to the fellowship to give us a climax of this movie. I think that was a great choice. Yeah, I forgot the timing of that. I, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you needed something because you need something to get you over that hump into the next film. Yeah, and 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 it's also very because now Boromir has a complete arc of development within this one, this one movie, which is lovely. His his death scene is lovely. It's it, it has. I, I would like it's to so dramatic, but it works. Well, it's one I mean, arrow, it, then another arrow. It's just <laughs> what it's it's so. It, I mean, he does this thing that's tar, you know, horrible or, or potentially horrible. And then he has to make a sacrifice. And in the sacrifice, he, he gets forgiveness and then he's reconciled. And once he's reconciled, once he gets forgiveness, he can see Aragorn as the king, right? That's his line. I'd follow you into hell 
my my companion, my brother, my king. And it's like in death you see, right? He, you know, there's all this like sight imagery there. And that's one of the the times where it's like sight as um as a sign of clarity, right? He's been cleared now. Speaking of Aragorn, I one of the things that just to play devil's advocate that I don't like that Peter did was that he took Aragorn and made him as if he didn't want to be king. Whereas in the books, he's he actually holds the shard of Narsil in like he has it in a sheath in his belt. Like he does, it's not at it's not at Rivendale. He actually still has it. He treasures that as a as a memento. I feel like I understand why they did it. They wanted to give Aragorn kind of like this this An this, arc, this yeah. build up. <laughs> but at the same time, that seemed like a little bit of a, of a weird one too because. Why would you take the broken sword away from it? Like, we don't have to know what the broken sword is until you reveal to us that it is, it's this ancient weapon from, you know, almost three, three, uh, 3,000 years ago. But I don't want to be king. I, I sort of, <laughs> you know, I sort of like that though, because it does, it does give him that kind of arc of development. And it also, it's again, this kind of idea of like, if you are really covetous after power, um there's going to be problems right it, it's the people who just have really no interest in power or a limited interest in power who we're most safe with right that's why like boromir who wants to protect the stewards he he has more trouble with the ring than aragorn who could just fold frodo's hand over it and say i i've de- i've sworn my life to protect you I, I do think it was a good adaptation for the movie to have Aragorn not want to be king, but Tolkien would not have liked that. Tolkien, uh, from what I understand, was very much so into caste systems and um, lords and great men are great. People that are below them are below them. And if you are king, you need to be a great man and kingly at all times, which I think in the book you see more of. So I don't think Tolkien would have liked that that change either. Yeah, though, to be fair to Tolkien, he's talking about that in terms of Middle English epics, I think, or Old English epics. Well, and and, right, that's Lord of the Rings to him was a creation story for England. So I I think this is all part of it. Um, Yeah. And and so, Tom, I think uh, Tolkien might say, wow, now I'm putting words in Tolkien's mouth, um, that Aragorn didn't lust for power. But he was a great man, so he should be in power. Yeah. Would have been the... Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is in this movie, right? I think there's this idea of the blood runs through him. He is a great man. It takes him a little bit to realize that he needs to do what he needs to do, though. Like in the beginning, he's still in this film. Yeah. Th- I was they're... joking before, I don't want it, but th- he didn't. <laughs> yeah. And and so going back to Boromir's death, uh, do you guys know the word um, you catastrophic? I don't even know if I'm saying it right, to be honest. Have you heard this term before? you catastrophic so i have now okay so um so i've i've heard on other podcasts and things that tolkien loved the idea of you catastrophe so a catastrophe is when multiple bad or terrible things all happen at the same time and it gets worse a terrible terrible outcome um comes out of it a you catastrophe is when a bunch of terrible things happen but then the best outcome comes out of that and that's the only way that best outcome could have came Mm-hmm. So I want to ask the question, would Boromir have sacrificed himself for Merry and Pippin if he hadn't had the experience with the ring and Frodo? That might be you catastrophe that allowed the orcs to, to leave everybody alone because they figured they had the hobbits because Boromir sacrificed himself because he um, ha- had that experience with Frodo and the ring. Well, that presumes Boromir wouldn't had he not had the... And I guess that's my question. If he hadn't had yeah. that experience, would he have felt like he needed to defend the hobbits to death? But he swore to protect them, right? Didn't he swore that his life would be to, to protect the... Merry and Pippin? Did he, all of them or the ring bearer? I think that's where the question is. I think he swore to protect Frodo. I'm not sure if the rest of them were... 
I don't think we I don't think we can say for sure mm -hmm. what the situation would be, but I think they hint at it a little bit when they're doing the the training scene. So Merry and Pippin are training with Boromir on the rock face, but when the birds fly over, and you see like he's actually he they're having fun together, training to be swordsmen. So I, I think that there's a little bit of camaraderie that's being built as they as the journey happens. So although I I like the what you're prefacing that it's the it's the the, the penultimate scene that leads to him you know, saving Merry and Pippin or defending them. But I also think that maybe, you know, if we're trying to show the humanity of Boromir, he maybe would have done it regardless of, of that scene, but we'll never know. Yeah, I sort of like that idea too. I, I think the the thing that, I think I like this idea of eucatastrophe. I think where it plays out is not he wouldn't have defended the halflings. I think it's that he is able to admit Gondor needs a king. Mm. That's yep. what I think that mm -hmm. does for him. All right. So at the conclusion of round number one, Nick, unfortunately, is trailing with zero points. Tom has one point and KJ is in the lead with 2.5 points. The 0.5 I'm giving him. I don't care. All right. We'll be back with round two after a word from our sponsors. We've had one round. Yes. But what about a second round? All right, guys, here we are back for round number two. But before we get to the pointed questions, I want a question for all of us that we can kind of answer. If you had to write the sequel to The Lord of the Rings that isn't The Two Towers, what would that plot be? KJ, what about you? What do you what is your go to sequel that's not The Two Towers? Oh, I, so I, I struggle with this, Chris, because I hold the books in high regard. I hold the movies in high regard. Um, they're like a safety blanket for me. So how dare anybody do anything but the the um, perfection that that Tolkien's already laid out for us? Um, I guess maybe something in the Shire, maybe follow Rosie Cotton around a little bit or, you know, just uh, see how the Green Dragons managed um, something along the line, these lines, something um, it may not make a good movie, but I love seeing the Shire up on the screen. So how about you guys, Nick, Tom, Chris, any other ideas, better ideas, hopefully? Mine's going to be a little bit different. It is going to be Shire focused in the sense that it's going to be filmed almost as a documentary of the expanding trade routes of pipeweed and Shire <laughs> beer like to it. other parts of uh, Middle Earth. So it's going to be a very industrious film and it's mm -hmm. going to see uh, some young hobbits uh, with some gusto go out there and expand past the borders of the Shire and, uh, build an empire from pipeweed and beer. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a Silk Road Marco Polo story. <laughs> I like it, yeah. Yeah, mine, so my sequel is, uh, is taking off uh, from this idea of like the corruption of power and people uh, create horrible worlds because they wanna grasp power in their arms. Um, my idea in instead is to do a sort of um, Brave New World Soma version where the ring of power is destroyed, but in its place is not a ring that controls all people in kind of a brutal or bloody way, but instead um, Sauron creates a ring that gives everyone pleasure, that everybody's just kind of relaxed and enjoying themselves all the time. I think all these are getting greenlit. <laughs> <laughs> my, my my sequel is a lot easier. Instead of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli going after the orcs and going after Merry Pippin, what happens if they get in the boat and follow Frodo and Sam? What happens to Merry and Pippin when they're left to their own devices? They actually know that they get out in two towers, but what would happen if they're not being pursued? And I mean, it really wasn't that big of a lake and the big long legs of Aragorn and Legolas would definitely have been able to catch up to Frodo if they wanted to. So what would have happened if they crossed the lake as well and traveled with them more towards Mordor? Hmm. That's an interesting concept. I haven't really thought about that. Why didn't they? Because he said they shouldn't. 
Well, I, I think Aragorn and Frodo's kind of interaction at the at the the monument at the top of the hill when the orcs finally get to them, Aragorn basically knows that Frodo is is not trusting of anybody or can't trust mm. anybody because the way the ring controls them. So he's basically tell them like he says, "I would have followed you to the end." Like at that moment, Aragorn is saying, "I won't follow you if you don't want me to." Mm-hmm. And Frodo is not fighting that; he's he's going off on his own. It's like a shared, uh, a shared conclusion they've come to that he needs to do the rest of it on his own. It's time for question three. After being stabbed by a Nazgul at Weathertop, Frodo is rushed to Rivendell by Arwen. He later awakens with Gandalf at his bedside. A little bit of reach here, but what season of the year is it in Rivendale when we see him wake up? Locked in? I I think I have this based upon... Locked in? I This is partially a guess, partially my imagination filling in. <laughs> I think that's the same for everybody. Yeah. I have no idea. You got a one in four chance. Ugh. It was the whole kitten caboodle, according to the movies, was 13 months. So if you knew the end or you knew the beginning, um, locked in with a guess. All right. Well, KJ, you were the last one to lock in with your guess. So what is that guess? I'll, I'll say the summer. Uh, Nick, what about you? I'm also in summer because he woke up in a bed that was outside. It didn't look like he had big comforters on and everyone else was dancing around and not wearing coats. So uh, his, his, his friends, very friendly fellow hobbits, seemed all very comfortable. So summer. And what about you, Tom? I was going to go with fall. I thought I saw brown leaves. I thought there was some kind of brown in it. All right. And Tom has gotten the correct answer. It was no. indeed autumn when you see it. And you can see this because there's multitudes of falling leaves in the background behind Gandalf as he's talking to Frodo. As they're walking up or as you see the wide panoramic shots of the miniature, it is 100% autumn. But the reason I bring this up is because I wanted to talk about Tolkien and his metaphors. Uh, He talks about how the elves are leaving the land. And we've always talked, everybody always kind of assumes that the, the calendar year and the seasons are like the stages of life. Like spring is the rebirth summer is when they're in their peak and fall is when they're waning leading to winter when they're finally gone and i don't think the weather in rivendale really matches the weather of middle earth so much as it is kind of like just with the the way that the elves are kind of progressing at the time and they're getting ready to leave and that's why i wanted to talk about this not because i'm a huge fan of the seasons but because i think there's a lot of metaphor in in the lord of the rings and even though tolkien has said before that it is not an allegory for war I feel like a lot of people can still take it for his experiences in World War One, and I wanted to open it up to the to the floor here and see what you guys thought about about that kind of information. Yeah, it's a, it's about the end of an era, literally in this, but it's, you know, the beginning of the era of man, the end of the era of elves, and everybody goes into the West eventually. That which is, ends up being death, right? You know, it's where it's where the sun goes away. Um, yeah, and fall is is the season of tragedy also, right? Because winter is really the season of irony. It's this kind of, it's this cold place where where nothing is is comforting. Uh, tragedy is is you know when when it all kind of falls apart. And this epic is in some ways tragic because it sees a time pass. It sees the end of an age. Uh, and I think that's that's what we're seeing. And it's also the tragedy of Frodo. And granted, we're going outside of the, the framework of the first film, but it's it's the story of the death of Frodo in, in a lot of ways as well. So I think the the departure of the elves in that in the sense of what we're looking at here is this this society is now falling away is sort of introducing both the tragedy of the characters we really care for and also the arrival of this new age and the hope of a more fragile species that that is man 
what do you what do you guys think about the idea that this was an allegory for World War One? Like he he says up and down that it wasn't. And I don't like like KJ, I don't want to put words in the Tolkien's mouth, but <laughs> like he goes from writing The Hobbit, which is a kid's story and it's written as a kid's story. He goes away to war. He loses a lot of his friends and then he comes back and writes the sequel to The Hobbit and ends up being this kind of darker story of good and evil and and things being forced upon an everyman this hobbit like they, he 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 says multiple times in this film i wish it hadn't happened to me i wish the ring had never come to me as if it's almost like i wish the war never happened or why did it have to happen in my time or why did i have to go and I, that's what i wanted to kind of talk about is like do you the, the the tragedy that's going on like what do you find that this allegory or this metaphor is true or am i making stuff up in my own head because that's what i want to see I, I have a little trouble with calling it an allegory because allegory does have a sort of here is the, the you're closing in on a, um, a meaning that is specifically political or, um, or moral or, or something like that, that sort of connects not exactly in a one-to-one ratio, but but closer to that, and I don't really see it. Like, who would be the like Sauron is the Kaiser, and is man the Americans? <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's like Aragon Woodrow Wilson. I you know what I mean? Like it it it's sort of once you look at it in any kind of detail, it sort of falls apart, right? I I think that the maybe not an allegory, but what we see in this is a questioning of. And here's our theme of the podcast of the modern coming in, right? And we see that especially in this movie and in the, the Fellowship book as well with Saruman and the kind of mechanation of battle, which is something that World War I is famous for. That's why it is, it is the modern war, even more than Napoleonic Wars, because it mechanizes war. And we see that a bit in this. And even in the, um, the, the making of the, are they the orakais or the orcs they make? They literally they make yes. people like like flesh and blood becomes a clockwork thing designed for war. So in that sense, there you can see an influence of World War One or a parallel. To call it an allegory, I think might be a step too far. Oh yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's an allegory. But I thought like him completely backing off the idea that it was a metaphor of any any way way shape or form seemed like it was too far of a step back. I think it's impossible just based on the timeline and the time frame in which he started writing this and did his revisions for it not to be influenced by the war. And I think wars, right? Because he started this in like 1937 and didn't even complete his earlier revisions till like 1949. So a lot happened on the grand stage of the world during that period of time. And he was involved in it. Wasn't he in the Air Force? So the Royal Air Force. So he, he saw a lot firsthand. So it had to influence the story. It's time for question four. After leaving Rivendale, the fellowship comes to Doran's door, the entrance to the mines of Moria. At the door, Frodo recognizes the inscription to be a riddle. Speak friend and enter. What is the elvish word? Locked in. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I cut you off there, but locked in. Oh crap! Um, got it, got it. I got it. I remember. Okay. Do you know it? Because <laughs> I thought I knew it, and then on this final watch, I realized I was wrong all these years, and now I know it. I, I, so I heard it, remembered it, read the book or that portion of the book again, and it, it the pronunciation sounds different from the spelling. So I'm going to say it in the spelled way, just because. You know, that seems to be. I'm going to say it and spell it. How do you like that? All right. Oh, locked in with a guess, guys. All right, KJ. It seems like these two guys have it on lock. So, what do you think the word for friend in Elvish is? Bello. Uh, Tom, what about you? I have melon. So, M E L L O N. And Nick? So, all these years, I thought it was bello, but it's actually melon. M-E-L-L-O-N. I thought that KJ too. I also thought. I am exactly with Nick. Nick and Tom both get the points for this one. It is indeed spelled melon. M-E-L-L-O-N. But in Sindarin, which is the the, the name of the language that Tolkien comes up with, it is pronounced melon. 
which is what Gandalf tries to say. So Nick and Tom are both going to get the points for that. No luck right. for me, though. <laughs> hey, so at least I didn't end up with a goose egg, okay? I'm just happy to have something on the board. And you knew that one right off the bat. That was, oh, like, yeah. you were ready for that one. <laughs> so the reason I brought this one up is because I feel like this was, my word to describe this movie was Nexus. I felt like this was the beginning of a brand new world for fantasy writing, for fantasy fiction, for fantasy movies and everything. Uh, so Tolkien's created language aside, which kind of gets forgotten that he wrote this book about a language, but everything that comes after it, right? The idea like D&D gets created in the 70s and Gary Gygax says that Lord of the Rings is 100% the, the driving force behind it and how the going into the minds of Moria is pretty much the quintessential dungeon dive that we think of when we play a, a single session of D&D. You go through the door of the dungeon, you fight a couple monsters, you have loss, you find treasure and you leave and then you suffer the consequences. Like what other things do you think have been opened by Lord of the Rings from whether it be pop culture on TV, whether it be music or movies or anything to that matter? What do you think this movie or this book may be unlocked for pop culture in general? especially nowadays, like geek culture is popular. It's not in the shadows, but <laughs> like, you know, it's out there. I mean, A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. I, I know these are all way, way later works, but all of this originated from Tolkien. And, and when I was watching this, I, I was really thinking about it. I'm like, yes, there's a lot of good stories out there, but I honestly think this is my favorite story. Not favorite movie, not favorite, just favorite story because it happened in a period of time where nothing like this existed in the, what, 30s? I mean, nothing. So it, it opened up everything that we're experiencing today with anything related to fantasy. I would posit that this movie is what unlocked the Lord of the Rings. So think of think of people. So Debiana Weiss, they're the people that were the producers on, on, on Game of Thrones. I think I misspoke. The Lord of the Rings in 2001 unlocks the Game of Thrones uh, on HBO. And I posit that the people that made Game of Thrones were highly influenced by seeing this movie as younger adults, maybe even kids. And I feel like all the geek culture that we're seeing are all created by peoples in their 40s and 50s which means that 20 years ago, they were seeing this movie as bright-eyed, idealistic individuals who then brought this to Hollywood, brought this to publishers, brought this to all the different bigwigs, and now we're seeing this explosion of, of interesting fantasy fiction and fantasy games and fantasy just everything. But I think not only does it stem from Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, but I think it comes from this movie, just the way the timeline kind of works out. Can we, talking about the history of fantasy, my understanding is that this is pretty much at the beginning of fantasy. Um, is that what is the fantasy tradition up until the 1930s? Well, I had this in my in the in the plot summary, the idea that like think of what an elf is. So if you think about like a Shakespearean elf from maybe, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, it's very fairy-like. It's very like uh, fae, like the fae wild, if you will. This is the first time that he actually, like I said, rebrands the elves. But now he makes them into what we consider the high elves, these intellectual beings that are are kind of above the human the human race, if you will, when it comes to their their love of nature and how intelligent mm -hmm. they are. So like this, this is the beginning of that version of an elf, I think. And I think for some fantasy, it is the beginning. Even the other character race tropes in fantasy started from here. Yeah, I, I don't because I'm looking through it and, you know, you think of uh um, Lewis Carroll and the Alice in Wonderland is a, there's that fantasy element. But when we think of the genre fantasy, we think of something in a world apart, right? Lewis Carroll purports to have a bridge between Alice and the, the, the world she enters. Lord of the Rings is, this is an entirely different world. And it's interesting because the, the kind of, um, what you might call speculative fiction that existed just before this was much more science-based. It seems almost like science fiction predates fantasy. And if we're bringing it back to kind of, your, Chris, your, your question about the war, what, what's interesting is that the war then kind of sponsors or maybe even influences possibly, we don't know, but influences Tolkien to bring this kind of pre-modern stuff into 
the conversation, right? Like fantasy is a movement almost away from the sort of speculative science fiction stuff that really dominated the the last half of the, the 19th century. Um, that seemed to be much more the type of fiction that was in the 19th century, speculative in, ter in terms of speculative fiction than, than fantasy. So the, the influence seems to be, it seems to be, um, of course he's taking from, from Beowulf and he's taking from, you know, the Song of Roland and these various Anglo-Saxon epics, um, as well as the, uh, the epics of Iceland too. They were a big influence on him. Um, but it's, you know, this kind of, like you're saying, Chris, he's rebranding it as this, within this kind of modern context and doing something that speculative fiction really wasn't doing, which is creating a world apart from science, a world that is literally not our world anymore. Unlike, you know, the John Carter books or Carter, is that his name? The guy who goes to Mars um, or, or the, or Frankenstein or even Dracula. What's crazy is he built the sandbox before he wrote these books. Yes, he started with The Hobbit. He, he wrote The Silmarillion. Of course, he had trouble getting that thing published. But he used all of that as the base of this story. Heck, we, we just talked about it. He created different languages, different, um, different alphabets for those languages. So it, it, it was truly creating that sandbox for him to play in. And now the rest of us to play in as well. The other thing that I think the Lord of the Rings movie did is it gave a playbook to how to create an MCU, right? They shot all oh, three of these movies good. at the same time. I'm sure the John Favreau and, and the guys that made the MCU studied how they made uh, the Lord of the Rings with the, the multiple director units. I think you were kind of talking about that before, Tom, and just the consistency, right? The MCU, one of the most incredible things is even though sometimes you're in... Um, Thorland. I don't even remember that. Uh, is it? I, no, it's not. It's I, whatever. Asgard. Asgard. Thank you. Even though sometimes it's in Asgard, Asgard, um, it, it feels like the same universe as Earth, as Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'm sure they use techniques that were probably developed by Peter Jackson to to get that through line. I just wish the Star Wars trilogy would have done that. <laughs> what you do is you take something beloved by all and just make it up as you go. Yeah. Let's not it's, get that, that conversation started. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Lord of the Rings. The yeah, it's, I think maybe part of what, what we're calling geek culture or nerd culture, I, I can never remember which one of those words is a pejorative and which one's a compliment, but is that, um, that actually I don't think necessarily has something to do with fantasy, um, but it has to do with completeness. This idea of really going all in on the the thing you make and and giving it a tremendous amount of detail it's replete with detail it needs its own languages it needs its own history it needs what does the book have six appendixes to help you <laughs> to help you understand what in the sam hell they're talking about half there's, the time? there's even a pronunciation guide in yeah, one of them, how to pronounce elvish yeah really though I think that's just additive. You don't necessarily have to dig deep. Into but things. I think I that's, flip through them. They're yeah. awesome. <laughs> but I think that's what people love. And I think people who like really get into Star Wars love it, not because of episode four or five necessarily, but because Star Wars is also a completed world. And it's, it's a deep world, right? We know the history of the... That, that ice cream maker thing that you guys were talking about, uh, whatever, you know, whatever the hell what, that was that called. That Cam Tono? Yeah. Oh God, you remember the name. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's what lasts too. It's people want depth. They want immersion. And I think that's what Lord of the Rings gives you. All right. Well, now the quiz, the quiz is over. Let's say congratulations to our winner who just so happens to be Tom with a total of five points. Congratulations, Yay. Tom. Nice one. You Tom. got me. You got me. Yay! It's time for movie rent. I, I have. I just have one more. I just have one more question. I'm pretty sure that Nick has already kind of alluded to this, but uh, my last question that was going to be our tiebreaker question was: How many arrows does it take to kill a Boromir? Four, three, three. I wrote that down in my notes too. Wait, it's I, definitely I three. It yeah, it's it been in my head for ages. It would have been four if uh, Aragorn hadn't gotten in the way, but he eventually yes. hit the Orakai out of the way. Yeah. It was he definitely sits there, three. he's drawing back on that fourth mm. one, Tom. 
but he doesn't lose. Okay. <laughs> this question was just going to lead into the epic ending, like how every mm -hmm. one of the characters has a way of kind of being heroic at the end. Mm -hmm. So Boromir can defend the hobbits and Aragorn can, can, you know, uh, give, let, let Frodo go. And the two hobbits, Barry and Pippin can kind of jump out in front of the orcs. So I think we've kind of covered that, but that was the tiebreaker question that mm -hmm. I was going to ask. And the other little factoid that I'll drop in here that I forgot to mention is the idea next time you see this movie or anybody sees this movie, when Gandalf is in Isengard talking to Saruman, look very closely at the top of his staff that you can see in frame. You can actually see his smoking pipe is depressed into the top of the staff. It's like a little little carrying case. He, he ticks it, he tups it into the top of his staff so that you can uh, <laughs> always, access. always have your pipe on the go. I think the best comment about the book, which kind of relates to our discussion of, of um, its place in the, the history or whatever, is uh, in the history of fantasy, is that what Tolkien is doing um, is he's doing real scholarship on fake material. And this came from uh, Michael D.C. Trout, who I believe is the editor of the Tolkien Encyclopedia. And it's he's doing actual like Anglo-Saxon uncovering detail and linguistic work on work he himself made up <laughs> and so there's this really kind of odd metafiction thing going on and the movie doesn't do that the movie is really steering away from Tolkien's central project and what that's another probably great thing about adaptation what an adaptation can do you can take away the central almost telos of of the work and come up still with this this wonderful wonderful product yeah tom i had heard that if you read all the names of the characters those names in old english or whatever tell you exactly what that character is going to do so really his story was just the characters names doing what their name was but i tried to look that up and I, it didn't quite match up for no me. Yeah. i i've looked up some of them a lot of it is derived from different languages um Oh, I'm trying to remember. I think old. I think Gandalf comes from old Scandinavian, if I have that correct. I might but have keep to... in mind, this is a hobby for him. That's where this started. He yeah, but is... it was his job. <laughs> he well, was no, a... I thought he was a professor. That yeah, studied... it's a job. Yeah. They... Oh yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. But what I meant, I'm, I'm talking about the Lord of the Rings, this, the Hobbit, these stories. This oh was, yeah. That's what I meant by. But yeah, it was a hobby in the sense that he was using the tools that he had created from his professional life and putting it into this made up universe. That yeah, he was but exploring. We, we should also say Tolkien was the scholar of Beowulf. His, his work, Beowulf and the Critics is a landmark study in, in the study of that work. I mean, he, he was one of the most important scholars in that field. And he made one of the most important, um, most important translations of Beowulf, which I'm, I'm told is really hard to read. It's probably not very good, but you know, he, he was, he's a big deal. He was a big deal independent of the Lord of the Rings. Yes. It, it, was, it would be like saying Indiana Jones was a professor and archeology span was his hobby. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, know if I, I, I could agree with that or not. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm just like, no, he was pretty successful in his real world, but then became successful later in life with the, his stories. But he was independently successful before that. I don't know. I mean, The Hobbit started off as a story he read to Christopher, his son. Yes, that's his, what I'm saying. This was a hobby. But he had a, I mean, he had a book editor. There was, the Hobbit sold very well. There was a demand. I mean, they asked for a sequel, which is, you know, eventually it was the Silmarillion that got scrapped and, and then he came up with, he expanded the last part of the Silmarillion, which became, became this. Um, but yeah, I, I think my, my point was, in, is this, what is, do, what is the dominant job of, of Tolkien? Um, so much as that this is a sort of metafiction project and the movie as adaptation drops that and yet creates something else that's that's quite wonderful well all i was trying to say is that independent of the lord of the rings he had a successful career and he used the skills he developed in his successful career to bring a lot of depth to this fantasy universe and project 
that started off as a hobby or a book to his son. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think it is. I think he's doing scholarship on something that doesn't exist. <laughs> Which is why we like it so much. Cause there's depth. Yeah. There's it's, feeling. I, I think that's what the great contribution is, is, you know, thickness of world as opposed to thickness of character becomes what's very important to, to the, the kind of geek culture that has, has survived this. So, so another thing we've been kind of dancing around a little bit is there was the theatrical edition and the extended edition. And the extended edition is a lot longer, but 20 minutes of the 50 extended minutes is the additional credits that fans could pay to have in the movie. <laughs> I love it. I love it yeah. so much. <laughs> Almost half of it is just... You know the names of the people that were in just those extended scenes. <laughs> so you're telling me that Peter Peter no, no. Jackson developed Patreon? Is that what you're, that's what you're telling uh, me? Exactly. Uh, yeah. It was about forty well bucks done. to have your name in the credits. Yeah. Oh, exactly. well done. I did not know that. I love that so much. Oh God, we got to do that. Well, if you want to add your name to this episode, you can find more of our content wherever you listen to podcasts on our YouTube channel, Twitter at Talking Studios and our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com. We're extremely grateful to all those who subscribe, like, follow, and leave a review. Do you think Frodo overstepped his bounds during the Council of Elrond? Why or why not? Let us know on Twitter, TalkingPicturesTrivia at gmail.com, or give us a call at 201-467-8679. You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15, and I have a b-side coming out soon so it's going to be going to be on modernism because that's what we do here for some reason you can find me on twitter at kj1000 1000 and if you'd like to get a hold of me feel free to reach out to the fellows over at talking studios on twitter i can also be found on twitter at the nickname i also want to say to chris thanks for a wonderful episode even though i did not win uh, that was a really good one. I was looking forward to this one for quite some time. Yes, thanks, guys. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be the questionnaire. I, it was a good, it was a nice change of pace. Yeah, bravo. Bravo. It was really, really well done. We may try to convince you for the rest of the trilogy. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, great, great episode, Chris. I really enjoyed this. Join us next time as we continue with The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Stay tuned for our first impressions of this film. Ding, 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 ding. Next week, we'll be discussing The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Tom, how was your watch? I saw this movie when it first came out in 2002, right? That was the year? Yep. And I think this is the best movie in the trilogy. It has a lot of different plot lines, and it introduces a lot of characters. It does it in a very enjoyable way. It also feels like it's the the most brisk, I think, of the three movies. I think it moves very, very fast. I don't know if it literally does, but it it certainly feels that way. And I I don't have anything more particularly insightful to say. I, I think I just really do uh, do love this this film out of a trilogy. I really do love a lot. Chris, how was your watch? Uh, I also saw this movie when it first came out in the theaters. I was really into Lord of the Rings when they were coming in the theaters. So I was there probably night one or night two to see this in uh, in central New Jersey when it came out. And it was probably an event to go to. Uh, I feel like I, I'm going to I'm going to be a little contrarian to you. I don't I think this one might be my least favorite of them. Uh, I don't I can't really put my finger on why. But in my rewatch just recently for coming up with the coming up with the questions, I, I found it a little bit a little bit harder. And I think I think I can explain why, but I think you're gonna have to tune into the episode to find out. What about you, KJ? What was how was your first impressions? So I mentioned last week um, that fellowship I went to the theater by myself. This was the complete opposite experience. So I'm a freshman in college and Everybody I know is uh, instant messaging me on AIM saying, hey, you're going to go see Two Towers? You're going to go see Two Towers? And it was so much fun. We all went together. It was a midnight release, literally. Like back then, the midnight releases were at midnight. Um, and we went to a, a decent theater. Um, they had us line up, not because there was long lines, but just because we were going to the correct theater. I guess almost every theater at midnight was planned. Um, Two Towers. So it was so much fun. Um, the movie's great. I 
don't think it holds up on its own. I think you need to watch Fellowship and then watch Two Towers. Like, I wouldn't throw this out there to somebody in the middle. Um, you know, like, like The Dark Knight holds up on its own. You don't need to watch Batman Begins. This is not the same. And then on subsequent watches, I really like Fellowship. I get through Two Towers, and then we'll save Return of the King for the Return of the King. Um, but how about you, Nick? How's your watch? I'm just like all of you where I saw it when it came out. It was a big deal. I enjoyed it then. I still enjoy it now. In fact, I remember watching these, the extended edition. I had like the deluxe mega DVD set that had like all the extra footage, all the behind the scenes. And I watched them through and through. So when I view these, for me, I I have to watch them all together. So my enjoyment kind of blurs through the whole trilogy. So I can't just kind of pinpoint it. What I will say is there is a lot going on in this film. So I had to watch it a few times, like not one viewing straight through, but I had to break it up. And there was one night I was watching with my wife. I said, okay, once this action sequence ends, We'll, we'll stop for tonight. But then they kept jumping to the other sequences because there is so much going on in so many different locations. It was like 30 minutes later before that specific action sequence ended. So yeah, I could see how some people might like that. Some people might have a problem with it, but I always enjoy these films equally uh, across the board. I just love the tale, the adventure. The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers is available on HBO Max at the time of this recording. I'll make sure, I'll make sure to do that next time I have a day off. Yeah. <laughs> per- peruse the Anglo-Saxon Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I heard there's a good Wordle in there. Okay, let's... Uh... I'm still confused by Wordle, but if you need help with your prepositions... <laughs> <laughs> I know who to call. And I'm sorry, KJ, I... Just because I'm like anal like that, I had to add the Lord of the Rings, the yeah. Fellowship of the Ring every time because that's actually the title. <laughs> I, I was nervous about the passion of the Joan of the Ark. <laughs> I didn't want to put too much. So I didn't want you to feel bad, but I had to put it. Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Okay. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's jump right into it. <laughs> That's so many legs. <laughs> I will not engage. Is <laughs> la <laughs> preposition? Uh, no, it's I an article. I said don't engage. 